This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Stephanie Maximus from the University of Pittsburgh, and today I'll be discussing COVID-19 and peer support with our guest, Dr. Trish Critic, Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Washington, and Dr. Graham Carlos, Associate Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Indiana University. Thank you both for joining us today on the podcast. So um, just to kind of give a little bit of background, um, Graham, I thought maybe you could give us a little bit of your reflections on how the burnout situation was in our specialty prior to the COVID epidemic um, within critical care and what efforts have you been involved with um, or, you know, them thinking about uh, in terms of what has been helpful. Thanks, Stephanie. So the statistics are very humbling. Uh, You know that every day in the USA, one physician takes their own life for suicide. And that number should pause us all in our tracks. We know from experiencing it that we're working long hours, we're under incredible stress to see patients in a timely fashion and move them through the system. We're working with EMRs um, that sometimes work for us and sometimes feel like they work against us. We've seen some things here at Indiana that have helped. One of the initiatives I'm most proud of is we schedule counseling appointments for everybody and we're ramping up our counselors with the idea that people are much more likely to go to an appointment if it's already been set for them. Um, They can opt out if they'd like to, but what we found is that uh, we start with our residents and when they started going, then they started talking amongst each other and they say, hey, yeah, I I went to it just to check it out and I found it really helpful and here's why. And then that lit the fuse and it just kind of became a cultural thing. And I know that's been one initiative that we're particularly proud of. In addition to that, uh, much like you're doing with the podcast, we need to keep getting the word out, educating people about what is burnout, what leads to burnout, and what steps can people take to uh, address it. I think that rounding on each other is an important step. Uh, as a leader in the hospital, just like I rounded my patients in the ICU, I'm rounding on my docs. I'm rounding on my residents, checking in. Uh, what's working? What's not working? One of my favorite questions to ask is, uh, tell me a couple wins and tell me a loss. And then working on that loss to improve systems, improve processes, however we can. And finally, I'd add advocate. We need to be advocating for our learners and for our faculty on so many levels, be it compensation, hours in the hospital, EMRs that work, staffing models that work. Uh, it's our job to continue to advocate for ourselves and for our learners. Thanks for those reflections. Um, I think that all is a great way of uh, considering ways that we sh- should have been and should be working on uh, supporting our healthcare workforce um, in the context of just general stress. Dr. Critic, could you tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've done in terms of peer support and what that means? I will, but only if you call me Trish. Okay, so, Trish. Um, yeah, I, first of all, Graham, I think what you're doing is awesome and it's inspiring to me. And there's so many things to talk about here. So uh, relevant to peer support, about um, three months ago now, it's hard to keep track of time now, isn't it? It feels like time is unmeasurable in so many ways. But about three months ago, we started um, training a bunch of folks here at the University of Washington to be peer supporters. And we decided to do it in an interdisciplinary way. So we trained physicians and advanced practice providers, but 
but also nurses, PCTs, a security worker, um, folks from across the spectrum in our institutions. And we did it across all the institutions of UW Medicine and really spent time teaching people how to be good active listeners and be a friend who can listen, who's been there and can say, yeah, this happens. I felt like that. This is how we'll, we'll get through this together. And uh, there's a few things in my life that I'm like, wow, that was a really good decision, but that was a really good decision because we rolled out in January and I couldn't be happier that we have all these folks who've been trained to be peer supporters. And they've stepped up to be peer supporters in this time of great uncertainty and anxiety. And I think, you know, just last night I got two requests for peer support um, through our electronic portal. I got a call that said, can you go check in on this person? And uh, I think it's been really great to do those outreach, but it's also been really great to say we're an institution that cares about peer support in, in some of the same ways that, that Graham has been talking about. And, and I'll tell you how it's grown since we've started COVID. So we were supposed to have a training uh, this week for our next cohort of peer supporters. And obviously we're not bringing people together to do that training, which was hard. And yet, you know, the ingenuity right now is so inspiring. And my team that is leads the peer support. The second really smart thing I did was hire a woman named Ann Browning as our assistant dean for well-being, who has become um, figuratively joined at the hip with me as we think about how to support our teams as we move forward. And with a whole cast of other characters who have been outstanding. But Anne and a colleague, one of our nursing leaders, um, Marie Cockerham, got together and said, let's do a Zoom short version, active listening teaching. And let's just invite people who want to, to do that. So we had a, about 50 folks on the phone or on Zoom yesterday going through how to, how to support resilience, which we think is so important right now, and then how to be an active listener for your peers. And um, we don't, we're not going to call them officially trained as peer supporters because we feel like that takes a little bit more training, but gosh, it's going to take all of us pitching in right now. And if it's 50 more people who can be good listeners in the moment, we want that to be the case. So we've been really lucky that we rolled out the peer support program. I think we're building upon it. And I would just echo what Graham said, and I have so much more to say about this, but um, it's the checking in. So we also have scheduled rounding and debriefs across our sites and checking in on folks. And the last thing that I just want to do a call out to, because I think it's a great idea, maybe other folks can do it too, is we partner with our psychiatry department to have Zoom check-ins as well. So we have over 50 psychiatrists and psychologists who are available for a, not a billable visit, but a check-in, sit, sit for 45 minutes and talk to somebody who's uh, trained in mental health. Um, and we've had unbelievable uptake of that, kind of sim similar to what what Graham was saying about people, when you when you give them a resource and say it's here for you, and and more importantly say we've made it available for you right now. We say the same thing with peer support. I'm going to connect you with a peer supporter, and then people can say no, it's okay, I don't want it. We don't say we have a peer supporter. We say we're going to do this for you. So I think that that's really great, and I've loved the partnership with our Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. It's been great because sometimes you want a peer supporter, but sometimes you want somebody who can give you some some strategies to deal with your anxiety and who's been trained to do that. So that that's a lot of words uh, because it's all I'm doing right now. Um, but I think there's lots of different ways we can keep supporting each other. That's awesome, Trish. I, lo I love those ideas. I'm going to take some of them and work on them here at IU. 
Yeah, likewise. I think I think the thing that's neat about that too is you've got it going on two levels, like the true peer, right? Mm -hmm. So in that case, are the peers, are they people who might be in your own department or division? Yeah, people we've tried who are to train, sort of in the trenches with you. Yeah, we've tried to train people across the spectrum. So, you know, there's a handful of intensivists and there's surgeons and there's outpatient docs and there's nurses from all different units of the hospital. There's EM folks. And, you know, I think, you know, if I was going to do it again, I'd enrich it for emergency medicine, internal medicine and critical care, because those are the folks who are feeling it the most right now. Um, but what I found is when I asked one of our rehab docs to be a peer supporter for somebody who was more immersed in, in COVID, that still works too. So yes, they are peers. They are people who are walking in, in the footsteps of folks and we try to match people up that way. But in this time, uh, there's a lot of people who can be good listeners who aren't doing exactly the same job. Yeah, absolutely. And then in terms of the uptake by psychiatry, has, has their response been very positive? Were they readily oh. available? Oh yeah, they well. So we, I met with the chair of psychiatry, and we kind of brainstormed on this, and was part of that brainstorming too. And he sent out an email, and within a couple of days, they had fifty volunteers to do this. So that's outstanding. And then when we went live, there were nine people who signed up on the day that we went live. So I think it speaks to the need. Um, so yeah, they've been outstanding. And 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 you know, I know you guys are feeling this too. Um, People want to help. People are volunteering mm -hmm. to do whatever the heck they can do. And so if that's a space that they can do that feels like it's helping the workforce, um, I think they're happy to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Graham and Stephanie, have you had that sense that like people are just saying, how can I help in any way possible? And I think we want to be creative about how we do let them help. Absolutely. Every day I get emails uh, from all disciplines uh, our chief radiology resident reached out and said, hey, I, I maybe can't do the patient care, but can I help call families? Uh, yeah. Can I help communicate? Uh, Department of Psychiatry, same thing. Uh, it, it's an overwhelming uh, sign of support, but it's also so encouraging. Yeah, I, our chair of urology said, I don't know how to be an internal medicine doctor, but I sure can write orders and write notes. So if you need <laughs> me to be your intern, I'm happy to be your intern. <laughs> how awesome is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's encouraging to hear that people are, are wanting to contribute in any way that they yeah. can. It's not to minimize the fear because there's plenty of fear out there and anxiety, but I think it's through that sense of community that we're going to get through this. And so I am really motivated to highlight the, the generosity and camaraderie and collaboration that I'm seeing every day. Yeah. Well, that's like a great segue into thinking about you know, you guys are, we are all three in different um, stages of the pandemic with Trish being a couple weeks, I think, ahead of Graham and, uh, and where I am. Um, what of the, what stressors have you noticed that is arising really to the top when thinking about healthcare workers from both physicians to nurses to sort of multidisciplinary folks? Um, and how is that different now compared to all those regular burnout stressors that we were thinking about in the pre-COVID era? Oh, yeah, I think there's one gigantic thing, and that's their own personal safety, right? I mean, I think Graham highlighted all the things that have been affecting our well-being for a long time, and they're not gone. <laughs> but, but this is different when you know that doctors and nurses are getting sick and healthcare providers are dying. That is a game changer in terms of the things that are stressing people out. And I think then 
correlated to that, what I hear a lot is, and am I going to go home and get my significant other and my kids infected? I mean, you know, thank goodness for the fact that kids seem to do really well with COVID, but it doesn't take away the fear of, of not wanting to give it to your family. So uh, I don't know, Graham, you tell me what, what you're hearing. I mean, I, those are the things that the personal healthcare risk, particularly as we hear what's happening in New York and the risk to one's family, um, and I use family in a very broad sense, the people that matter to, to you, um, those seem like two big ones. And then maybe the physical distancing uh, is also a big stressor. So what do you think, Graham? Yeah, I, you know, when you're stressed, your cortisol levels go up and your blood pressure goes up and uh, that's okay in a spot for a stressful situation, but I feel like my cortisol levels are up all day, all the time. And uh, I sense that in my staff as well. In addition to the safety concerns you mentioned, the social distancing, I worry about it leading to emotional distancing. And that's the exact opposite of what we just talked about a few moments ago with the need to reach out and support. I also worry about the rapid pace of communication changes. Mm -hmm. Each day, it seems like we have a new mask policy. Each day, we have a new cohort unit with new rules and regs. Mm -hmm. Each day, the OR is changing what you can and can't do and who you can and can't schedule. Each day, I send out an email about telehealth and how to build this and code this and attest to that. And just the pace of it all is dizzying on top of an already high stress level. The biggest thing I worry about is moral distress because we know that that is a key factor that leads to high, high burnout levels. And the moral distress comes when you believe that you aren't equipped to do your job to take care of patients. It comes when you start to see patients not get the care you think they need to get uh, because of this virus. It comes when you start to have tough discussions about ventilator allocation and how that would look and who would get a vent and who wouldn't. And these discussions are happening for me after hours, after being in the unit, after talking to the staff and rounding on them. Uh, and it's robbing me of time with my family personally because I want to FaceTime with them and see them and all that stuff uh, like I normally do. And uh, I see it in the eyes of my girls that they want daddy because they're scared that, that daddies might get sick and, and then I'm incredibly busy. So I, it's personally, uh, it resonates with me. I can feel the cortisol, I can feel the pressure, I can feel the distress. Yeah, I think you highlight what is definitely, a couple things. One is, just to say it out loud, this is really hard on the leaders. And I think um, they are leaders for a reason. And everyone has moments when they need a break and it's been continuous. Um, and folks who are never anxious have told me, I feel anxious. And I think it's normal that we're all feeling anxious at various points in time. So I, I think it is 24 seven. And then change is hard at baseline. Change is hard. Yes. And now we're asking people to change as Graham just said perfectly every 15 minutes, like you wake up and there's 20, in, 20 new emails about what's different today. Mm -hmm. And that is really hard and and everyone deals with it differently right some people are like finally i've wanted rapid change for years and they're like oh this is good <laughs> but they're the minority most people are like could something stay static for 24 hours that would be really really good um or they're good with it for six days and on the seventh day it's just too much i, I just i can't take it today and i think we all have to give each other some grace for those moments um because there's not a single one of us who isn't having those moments Mm -hmm. And I think for me, I have a steady stream of texts from certain people that are the, 
I need to release right now. And sometimes it's a funny meme and sometimes it's a, I need to rant. And sometimes it's a, can you just talk for five minutes? And that's great. And we have to keep doing that for each other, for sure. Um, moral distress is definitely there too. I, I, it, it, it started with not having families in the hospital that already caused some moral distress. And then lots of discussions about surgeries and whether or not that's good or bad to stop them. And I can see both sides of that, to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, and now it is around, are we gonna have the PPE to, to keep people safe? And are we gonna have the ventilators to take care of people? And I think those are becoming realities in New York right now. And it, it, it's the real deal. And so um, I think that's only gonna get worse, to be honest, as this progresses. And I think we have to keep talking about it and being as, one of the things that I think is super important, and it, it kind of goes at odds with the like too many emails, but transparency and mm -hmm. communication that's something we've been really working on. We do a weekly town hall with the intent of like making people have the opportunity to hear what we're thinking. And we try to be more and more transparent about things like that, because I think as, as we ratchet up towards crisis level of care, that, that communication and transparency is going to be really, really important and still super hard. Yes. We want people to be respectful, but we also want candor. I really need to know what's going on. I really need to know how you're feeling. Be respectful and we'll walk through this together, but, but I need to hear from my staff and from my docs, where are you struggling? And I've used that, where are we winning and where are we losing a lot uh, this last week? And I found that to be helpful because then I can celebrate the wins. If you don't celebrate wins, it feels like you're always losing. So when you extubate a patient or you, know, you, you have another milestone that you pass, then we, need to shout that out. When a provider goes above and beyond, we need to recognize that. Uh, that puts wind in their sails and gives fuel to their fire and they need it all right now. I agree. I think the wind, I like your technique and I think gratitude is, is um, a way to feel better too. So saying thanks and, mm -hmm. and celebrating those wins, I completely agree with. We're going to start our town hall today with a patient, the first patient that we extubated and who's now been discharged home, which Nice. is awesome. And we want to keep thinking about those folks too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to both of your points, it sounds like there's really no way to over communicate with how rapidly everything is changing and to make sure that everybody feels like they are on the same page, even if that page only lasts for 15 minutes, um, <laughs> so that people are, don't feel like they're in the dark or that things are being hidden away from them. Um, and so that they feel connected to the community um, that they're mm -hmm. working in. And also that it just seems like uh, this whole experience has really uh, brought everybody to this sort of baseline level of humanity where, like you said, we have to recognize these small wins at that normally, right? When we extubate the average patient, you know, you're on to the next, you're on to the next, but now you have to take a minute and say, this is, this one was a success and we have to you know, give credit where it's due and be thankful for that because you don't know what's coming down the line next. Yeah. Well said. Um, to switch gears a little bit, you know, how have you guys been thinking about this in terms of trainees and medical students who have in some ways been sidelined in the early days of this pandemic, um, which may change over time? Well, I, um, People around here at IU know that I try to make every doc a lung doc. Uh, from second year medical school, I try to inspire them to pull crit, much to the chagrin of our other specialties, to my interns who I'm always trying to engage, inspire, and equip for pulmonary medicine. And so 
I'm on fire as an educator trying to make every doc a long doc. I'm uh, trying to put some stuff on social media. I'm having teaching sessions and whiteboard sessions that Trish showed me how to do effectively. And <laughs> uh, I'm getting a ton of engagement. And as you guys know that are educators, if you give me even one person who's interested in what I have to say and wants to learn, sign me up. And I have anesthesiologists and uh, hospitalists and others that want to learn the steps, learn about COVID-19, learn about basics of critical care. Um, my residents and fellows in particular uh, are just, they lean in a little more now on those vent talks and on those ICU physiology talks. And so one thing I've been doing is trying to equip them with the knowledge uh, they need because some of them, I have a couple fellows that are on the bench, just get ready to call it in and they're itching. They're wanting to be in the unit and want to go. And so I'm telling them the best thing you guys can do right now is just uh, equip yourselves because uh, we do believe that we're going to need everybody. I love that. And I love, I, I know you are creating the next workforce already by getting people excited about pulmonary and critical care. I think that's awesome. Um, I've been doing stuff maybe on uh, a little bit more higher level because I honestly have been doing a lot of organization across the institutions. Um, but I have a few things. One is, it was amazing to me that as soon as stuff started to heat up here, which was a while ago now, um, the medical students before school was even canceled, were, which it, it's not canceled, I should say, it's online now um, or virtual. Um, I got an outpouring of emails from medical students saying, how can I help? And how can I help? I want to be doing something to help. So it's hard, right? Because we're not having them in the clinical spaces right now. And I think that makes sense. And I also understand they want to help. So we created a care and share website where people can volunteer to help take care of kids or take the dog for a walk or get the groceries for somebody or whatever it is. And we have hundreds of offers and so many of them are medical students who are like, I can do this, I can do that, which I look at every day because it's heartwarming to me to look at it. So that's a great place that the students have been engaged and partnered with us. And I think it helps to feel like you're part of things. And I, on Monday, I'm meeting with a cohort of students and some of the other deans from the medical school to think about, to brainstorm together about what else they can do. Because I think that there's a real, I mean, they chose to be healthcare providers for a reason and they want to be part of our team and they are a part of our team. Um, for our trainees, uh, two things that I'll share. And I know a lot of programs are doing this across the country, but Bashak Chiru, who's our program director, is having weekly Zoom check-ins with our um, fellows. I suspect that many places are doing that at the hour that we would usually call happy hour, and they have a adult beverage while they do that check-in, um, and that's great. Uh, I think that that maintenance of community is so important. And I was just having a wellness check-in yesterday with some of the folks in our division, including including fellows. And they were citing that as one of the things that, you know, they've lost that sense of community with their physically coming together for teaching each week. We still do the teaching, but we do it by Zoom. But they like the, the low-key um, check-ins as well, where they can just chat, you know, have a normal conversation. Um, we actually did our teaching conference two weeks ago, all on COVID. We did our teaching conference this week, not on COVID. And I would say both were great. Talking about COVID was really good because we're all craving information, even when there's not information. And then talking about something else, LAM, 
um, you know, something, some, some esoteric pulmonary concept was really good because at the end of the day, we're pulmonologists and it was fun to talk about that for, for an hour. Um, so I, that's one thing. And then the last thing that I'll say is last night we did, uh, I was lucky enough to moderate uh, a town hall that the, the leaders in GME brought together across the whole institution. So we did a town hall for all residents and fellows. We had about 300 and some people on and then it was recorded and will be posted. And, and to be honest, that's about us thinking about engaging them in the workforce as we prepare for the surge mm -hmm. and doing some work to talk about um, what that means for them um, and how that will happen. And so that was informational, uh, question answering, and I think also community building as we think about how they do become part of the workforce because they, that, that has been less the model so far, but we're very aware that if predictions go as they're slated to go, we will need everybody um, mm -hmm. to participate. So, so that would be the other aspect of this. That's awesome. Yeah, well, a lot of good options to consider um, as the weeks kind of progress, how to engage all the different levels of, of staff, trainees, and learners uh, in whatever way possible. Mm -hmm. I can see the title of the chess conference, Lymphangial Myomatosis, and then the crowd says, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was good. Members. It was awesome. great. You know, never wanted to talk about bread and butter pulmonary medicine as much as you do now. I know. Well, it's funny, Mark Tonelli, one of my colleagues was telling me when he was on in the COVID unit, he's like, the thing about it is it's the same for every patient. And it's weird, right? It's yeah. weird to be like, and rinse and repeat and yeah. rinse and repeat. And so it's kind of good to, think, to exercise your brain in a different way for a little while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, when the dust settles from all of this, whenever that may be, we're going to look back and have a lot of lessons learned that will only make sense sort of in hindsight. Um, but if you were to look ahead, try to look ahead or experimentally look ahead with me, um, how should we ideally be thinking about structuring our work environments and our, you know, medical communities to better shore ourselves up for the next version of this, whether it's the next wave of COVID in coming months or the next challenge to our, you know, life as we know it in medicine. Do you well, mean, Stephanie? Sure we have to have more money to fund GME uh, from the government. Uh, I think we could all benefit from having more hands on deck. That'd be something we need to advocate for, for sure. And I think that this situation is going to show just how important the GME workforce is to the healthcare workforce in general. And so I hope we can advocate and highlight that uh, and some changes can be made both in their numbers and in their compensation. Uh, so that's one thing that I hope comes from this uh, that, that helps us all. I also would love, we talked about celebrating wins earlier we have M&Ms. We're used to M&Ms. I'd love to have Hall of Fame cases and cases where we really dissect what went right here. What were the systems that really helped us to reinforce to everybody safety protocols and uh, reinforce how why good practice is good practice. And so it again gets at that mindset of working together and keeping people safe. So those were just two kind of off the cuff things, but I'm curious to hear what Trish has to say. Well, I was going to ask glass half full person, Graham. I'm very impressed. <laughs> I, I didn't know if you meant like from a systems level or from like a keeping the support of our workforce. Um, 
I'm going to answer the latter, which is, I think all the stuff that we're doing to take care of each other, we should do all the time. Mm -hmm. And maybe it makes it a little bit more normal to do the stuff that Graham was talking about, which is like talking to a counselor on a regular basis mm -hmm. or reaching out to each other and checking in on a regular basis or making our communication more transparent and celebrating the wins. I love that. And, um, and all those things that I think, yeah, we have to fix the EHR and yes, we need to um, not overtax our, our physicians and we could create an environment where we celebrate the joys of medicine a little bit more. And maybe we need to keep doing that um, because right now I'm finding, I'm, I, I think it's so important to find those bright spots, but it's going to be important to keep doing that after this all occurs. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. if I was going to answer the first question, you could do a hell of a lot more planning so that we're ready to do this next time. And I think we have to learn from this about all the things that, that we're like kind of doing in, oh, I wish this was different right now moment. Mm -hmm. And we can't forget it. It's so easy to forget it as soon as we're done. And whether that's having an actual plan for your incident command or having a strategy for how you're going to get your workforce up and running or how we're going to train folks to be critical care doctors who haven't seen an ICU in several years or having, having the, the ventilators that we need, all those things, I, gosh, we have to learn from this. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a whole different podcast. Right. Yeah. That's structural, structural issues. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's a great point that you make about how in the long run, um, there are going to be a long term effects of this on, on the entire healthcare workforce. Mm -hmm. I think looking back, there were some papers that came out about what, what went on in, in the hospitals in Toronto after mm -hmm. SARS in 2003 in the years following that. And there were a lot of, um, considerable, uh, mental health impacts on the staff that um, participated in the care of those sick patients. And I think we're going to see that even more widespread in our, in our communities across the world. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're already feeling it for mm -hmm. sure. And it'll be interesting. I mean, to be really frank, it'll be interesting to see how it impacts people's decisions to be healthcare providers. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good yeah. point. I've been wondering, will it make people run away or will it make people flock to it? Or maybe a different group of people will flock I to it. Yeah, I think if the answer is yes, I think it will look different to make a decision to be a healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it will inspire some people and it will scare some people. And so it will be interesting to see how all that plays out. And I think you're so right that we're gonna have to think about everybody's mental health. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm just gonna call it health because mental health is part all of the health. Yeah, yeah, the health of our workforce. All right. the health, yeah. Um, any tips for operationalizing a peer support kind of model in this setting that people might be able to try to put something together that you think you could leave our folks with? Yeah, I, I think what I would say is we, you could do some of that kind of by Zoom, teaching people how to be back, better active listeners and try to try to engage a group of people to do that so that maybe they can start to build some of those skills. I think talking about the need for it and finding those folks who naturally gravitate to that role and then giving them some, some early skills might be a strategy. Our hope is that for our, we're gonna post what we did for our training and we'd be happy to let people listen in and share. So um, I, I think it's talking about it, inspiring the folks who naturally do it because you know who those people are and asking them to 
to partner with you in doing it in the short term. And then maybe giving the people who are inclined towards it a few more skills so they can do it a little bit more. And then giving everybody the grace to say, today is not the day I can do it because there are days that I can't do it. I agree and attest to that statement. Excellently <laughs> said. Thanks, Trish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts that you guys want to leave our listeners with in terms of thinking about how to support each other uh, through the coming weeks and months? Keep reaching out. Uh, stay positive, but stay real. Use candor. Round on each other. While we socially distance, don't emotionally distance. I love all those awesome. words. I think mm -hmm. the, the, the take home for me is we'll get through this, but we'll get through this by doing it together. And so mm -hmm. we, need to, we need to stay together. And so take care of yourself and take care of each other as we move forward. Yeah, the community has never been more important than it is now. Mm -hmm. I agree with both of you guys. Um, well, thank you. Thank you both so much for your reflections, for your really hard work, uh, not only in your institutions, but also kind of in the bigger picture of how our critical care workforce should be uh, coming to the dealing with this pandemic as, as things start to heat up. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners um, for tuning into this week's episode of Scholarly. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage, atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.